0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. So last week, um, our family took my parents to Atlanta to see A Christmas Carol, and as we uh, traverse the congested and confusing roads of Atlanta, you can hear my opinion on living in a big city. I'm just not a big fan. I know um, Matt would traverse the city on his bike and both, I think, Atlanta and L.A., and I'm just not a big city person, but nevertheless, we, we made our way around. We found where we were intending to go, and along the way, Dad actually pointed out one of the local hospitals, and he reminded us that he, that's, that's where. That's where I was born, where your mother was born, where your uncle was born, right there. And he, he did qualify that it wasn't in the parking lot, and I think that much was understood, but it was, it was at that hospital, that place on this earth that, that they came, as it were, that was their point of independent entry into this world. It was the beginning of their story, as it were, one that plainly began many months before while being nurtured in their mother's womb, but a, a story that most overtly began at their birth. And if we'd taken a different route, I could have pointed out to Noah and Silas, my own birthplace, also in Atlanta, at another long-standing hospital that's introduced thousands of others into this natural life and, and just said, look, that's, that's, where, that's where I came. That's where, that was my starting point. And then when leaving Atlanta, if we were going west rather than south, so we, for decades it was west, but now we're, we're south of Atlanta, or more south of Atlanta, but if we'd gone west rather than south, we could have in short order provided Denise an opportunity to have her turn at pointing out her birthplace as well, directing everyone's attention to the parking lot of a local Home Depot. <laughs> and, and to be clear though, she, she had no say in the matter, and, um, this is embellishing, but nevertheless, her dad recognized her mother's urgency to get to the hospital, but they were having a cell on DeWalt drills, and so they, they stopped, and, and Denise did not, and so she came right then and there, and so her father wanted to honor the occasion, and, but DeWalt did not sound feminine enough, so they went with Denise, but then they decided, no, Denise would be better. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm kidding. The, the hospital, though, where she was born She can't point it out anymore, can she, because it's been demolished. And so maybe some of you were were actually born over at that same hospital in Ostel, and it's gone. It's, it's, It's no longer there. It's been demolished where it once proudly stood, now stands a Home Depot. Her birthplace not having the distinguished dignity that it once possessed. And by stark contrast, though, there are some historical figures whose birthplaces have been uniquely memorialized and preserved, I've seen some of these, and likely you have two, maybe sometimes in a cabin. Like, how did a cabin survive, but the hospital didn't? And there's no Home Depot there. It will forever, or at least for the, the years to come, be marked off by probably velvet rope. And this little log cabin or this little remote area that someone of uh, distinguished character or, or, or historical noteworthiness, they were they were born there. That's, that's where they were born. I even once saw a hole in the ground in a church where someone was born but why such musings and such considerations about birthplaces well the plainest answer would probably be that we're we're worshipfully memorializing worshipfully celebrating a birth today it didn't get lost on me that this is Christmas Eve. I, I have before preached messages and just soldiered through, and there's, there's different convictions and persuasions that you don't stop for holidays or break for different things. And I think the first time that I did that was on a Mother's Day, and I just thought the best way to honor my mother would just be to be faithful with the text. And I think that went fine with mom, but not necessarily a larger group of mothers. But nevertheless, there's a time to, to distinguish certain moments and to, to memorialize, and we're certainly doing that as we memorialize and celebrate the birth of our Savior today. And that's obviously the the plainest answer as to why we would talk about birth and birthplace. It's probably the best reason as well. But I would also say that the reason for such a celebratory remembrance goes also back to, to Genesis 1 through 3. Before there were any natural births occurring of men or women, God was speaking his creation into existence. And then he was forming man, and then forming woman, and then shortly thereafter, promising their redemption through her seed. Very short order, no natural births even to celebrate yet, and yet there's already the promise of a redemption that would come through one who would be born. Their necessary redemption, promising a child that would be born, and much later, promising that the child would be born in Bethlehem. And while not quite on cue, so I know that some of us, um, it's, I'm very sympathetic to anybody that shows up late, whatever that means. Um, I, I'm familiar with being late and casual. We, I think we call that here casual, right? It's casual start. That's our version of, of uh, not being precise, um, which I'm happy with. I think it's really nice. But nevertheless, this pattern's continued, and, and I got to see the birthplace in Bethlehem, but I wasn't quite on cue. I... Actually, I heeded the exhortation of the beloved song a little late. But nevertheless, I did come to Bethlehem and see where Christ, whose birth, the angels sing. I got to go. I I saw it. And so I was a little bit late, but nevertheless, I was there. Because Christ had already ascended to the Father's right hand by the time I'd arrived. But I came nevertheless to see. And it was rather easy to find the spot. Very precisely, the spot. As the church was built on the spot where some would claim Christ was born. And upon making my way down to the special room in the lower floor of the church, I saw a hole marked off with a a bronze-like ring there, like a little star ring, and I walked right over to it, gazed down several feet to the nondescript spot on the ground. You know what happened next? I had a strong sensation come over me. But it was not exactly a supernatural experience having beheld the spot no, it was a gentle wave of embarrassment as I looked up and realized that there was a line of people in the outskirts of the room all waiting to have their moment. at. And I just literally walked in there, said, oh, there it is, and stole a peek ahead of all of them, started taking pictures, and then looked around and thought, oh, there's a line. They were all waiting to see the spot. But even if I, with great generosity, could affirm that that was the spot, and and... I don't think they memorialized it quite that way, but nevertheless, would I have been uniquely blessed or had some mystical or spiritual grace bestowed upon me? No. Because as I mentioned um, a moment ago, I was almost 2,000 years late. If I wanted an experience with the spot, I I was late. To come to Bethlehem and see Christ's birth, the angels sing, to come and adore on bended knee Christ the Lord, the newborn King. Still, I came to the city. I am confident of that. That much I'm absolutely confident of, that it was the city of Bethlehem. The city of David that Joseph and Mary came to under compulsion, even while she was great with child. The city in which Christ was indeed born. And why are such matters special to us? Because God made a promise, and God built and built and built upon that promise until in that city... And according to God's sure word, the creator did not only engage his creation, he's done that. As Frank was praying, he, he, he sent prophets. And he even supernaturally engaged his creation. But this was different. He didn't just engage his creation, he joined his creation. Or as Paul expressed such matters, Christ Jesus, although in the, existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of man. Now, in God's providence, we've given this matter no small measure of attention over the last several weeks or so, and so today I would like to complement that work by considering the humble and yet esteemed nature of the sons of men that we might ultimately better appreciate Christ's incarnation in a way so as to see the greater humility and greater esteeming of the Son of Man. And to do this, I want to walk together through Psalm 8. That might not be the first choice that you would have thought, oh, it's Christmas Eve. I can't wait to read Psalm 8 together. But I think it'll be an encouragement to you. I hope it will be an encouragement to you. It's a psalm that's an enthusiastic, an enthusiastic exaltation of the Creator. It's, it's very clear. The Lord's making much of Himself as the Creator. It's a psalm that graciously reminds us of man's place and role in this world. You know, there's people all the time trying to figure out and understand, what's my place? What's my identity? What's my purpose in this world? Well, Psalm 8 is, is very clear about such matters, and it's a psalm that's generously drawn from in later Revelation. You have Matthew, you have Ephesians, you have Hebrews, you have 1 Corinthians. And it, what's it, why is it drawing on it? Well, it's directing us to an enthusiastic exaltation of the Son of Man. And it's a psalm that is generously drawn from in later Revelation in such a way so as to remind us that the Son of Man's place and role in creation, how do we understand not only ourselves, but even Jesus in view of creation? So let's walk through Psalm 8 together, marrying the dignity of its original context with a generous view to the celebration of the birth of the Son. Psalm 8. For the choir director, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, as I've shared before, there's a, I would say there's a measure of skill to to titling a study well. There's a, you can be cute about it and you can be, uh, try to attention grab or you can exercise a genuine measure of skill in terms of uh, capturing the whole of what's being said with a concise economy of words and that's not ex- exactly my expertise. So I'm very grateful for those who can be very precise and very clear to just capture the whole of something. And I believe that uh, the Kyle and Dolch, the, the commentators, they've accomplished this in their own treatment of, this, of their uh, titling of this psalm. They called it, The Praise of the Creator's Glory, Sung by the Starry Heavens to Puny Man. And this is a title which is later filled out with the observation the poet has the starry heavens before him. He begins with the glorious revelation of Yahweh's power on earth and in the heavens and then pauses at man, comparatively puny man, to whom Yahweh condescends in love and whom he has made Lord over his creation. A merciful condescension in love that in time, in accordance to promise, extending to the to the sending of the Son who came in humility and was raised in power and to whom all creation, every element of creation has been brought under his submission. And with this, I hope you see that we're, what we're aiming to do today. We're, we're aiming to honor the original context. I, I'm a student of the Psalms. I love the Psalms and I, I try very hard to be careful about their context and to, to honor that. And we're going to honor the original context, but we're going to take a measure of, uh, I think, worshipful liberty while taking a clear view also to the incarnation of the Son. We're going to see how these things can come together for us and provoke us to proper worship in view of the occasion today. Now, in view of the psalm's context and a proper engagement thereof, I think it's helpful to approach it with a view to its structure. And to that end, I've disciplined myself to outline the psalm and I've taken note of a, a range of other persons' work in this area too. And among the persons that I engaged in this matter of structure was a familiar name to some of you, one that uh, Pastor Matt really has found uniquely and especially useful, David Dorsey. He, he was a, a master of observing and articulating structure, especially with poetry, and I think he'll be our greatest help here as well. So Dorsey observed that Psalm 8 was a four-part symmetry, and it uses a, an A-B-B-A B, B, a pattern, titling his A components, the refrains, which as you likely notice when we're reading through the psalm or just listening to it or quickly given the opportunity to go back at it, they they mirror one another. A and A, verse 1 and verse 9, they mirror one another. O Lord, or O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So verse 1 and verse 9 both again declare once more, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And as you may remember from our other engagements in the psalms, this repeating of an opening and closing line is referred to as an inclusio. And then I know that's a rhetorical term, and maybe you think, well, that, what use is that? Well, it helps us appreciate the structure. It helps us appreciate what he's aiming at. So it's an inclusio, which means it provides not only a, rhetor- it provides a rhetorical symmetry in the sense that the beginning and the end mirror one another. They bracket the psalm. And it gives the reader or the singers a clear indication of how one should view the message of the psalm's body. And so sometimes what I try to do, I'm not not always as skilled at as I'd like to be, but sometimes I'll give you a point of illustration or a story or, or something to hang on to at the beginning of a message. And what I'll try to do by the very end, I try to reintroduce that as I conclude it. It's because what I was saying at the beginning and the end is giving you a clue to what I was hoping to accomplish and speak to throughout the message. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, I want you to focus and give your primary attention to this eruption of worshipful praise to Yahweh. And so there's that indication of what the message of the psalm's body is going to be about. A clear emphasis developed from the opening and closing lines. So for our purposes, David wants us to see the whole of the psalm with a view to the majesty of our Lord Yahweh throughout the whole earth. Hence, Maybe why we're going to pray in view of how we are this week. Naturally, we pray this way every week, but in terms of our missions moment, Lord, I want to see your glory expanded throughout the whole earth. And such is why, again, I think Kyle and Delch, who I've referenced just a moment ago, provided us a helpful title in their engagement of Psalm 8. Again, the praise of the Creator's glory sung by the starry heavens to puny man. Now, Dorsey's B sections, or the middle sections, constitute the body of the psalm, and thematically they complement one another by way of a question-and-answer format, which draws on two key terms present in both sections. Those key key terms or phrases are glory and the complementary phrases of works of your fingers or works of your hands. So both both middle sections will have glory and some measure of God's work, or Yahweh's work. And he frames those as a question and answer, the the body of the psalm. So the question, as proposed by Dorsey, is, in light of Yahweh's glory in his creation of the heavens and in the works of your fingers, of what value is humankind to Yahweh? That's a good question. We don't always ask good questions, because sometimes we don't have good information, or maybe just we're not as insightful, but that's a very good question. In light of your glorious handiwork and creation, How do we understand man? And the answer, as proposed by Dorsey, is humankind is valuable because Yahweh has given them glory and has put them in charge of the works of Yahweh's hands. So once more, the psalm is bracketed by the refrain, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And between that refrain is the body with two complementary statements expressed in a question and answer format. So we have the refrain, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The question in light of Yahweh's glory and his creation of the heavens and the works of your fingers, of what value is humankind to Yahweh? The answer, humankind is valuable because Yahweh has given them glory and has put them in charge of the works of his hands. And then the refrain that closes, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, I think that's a really helpful and clear way to understand the structure of this psalm. And when you understand the structure of it, you could walk away and say, I, I got an appreciation of it. You could, we could stop now, not exposit it, not walk through it, and I think that you could take Psalm 8 with those pieces and really appreciate it and have a worshipful response and a, and a proper worshipful response. But if I may, I would fill it out just a little bit more for us, for our purposes of working our way through it as well. So... The refrains I would express as opening with uh, expressions of Yahweh's worshipful adoration, excuse me, expressions of worshipful adoration of Yahweh. That's how I view the opening refrain, It's expressions of worshipful adoration of Yahweh. And then the questions would include, verse 2, the humiliation of enemies. And so not just what is man, but oh, the, the, Yahweh, his enemies, and he addresses those enemies. How does he address them? The works that provoke wonder. Verse 3. And verse 4, a proper valuation of man who both both God remembers and cares for. And then for the answer portion, the unique esteeming of man. And man is uniquely esteemed. That doesn't give us a big head. No, we're quite to the contrary. And then verses 6 through 8, the stewardship of man. And then the closing with the expression of worshipful adoration of Yahweh once more with verse 9. Now, for those of you who have walked with me through various psalms, you will recognize that I left something important out. With, with door season, um breakdown of it, with my own ref, uh, more uh, detailed breakdown of it, I left something important out, namely attention to the psalm's header, or you might say the title of the psalm. And by that, I don't mean um, necessarily how your, your Bible may um, add helpful titles or, or headings. Sometimes those can... Sometimes they get it amazingly precise and sometimes not so much, but this would be the header of the psalm, namely for the choir director, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. And I think that information is really important. I think that helps us understand the psalm. I, I do see that as part of how we should engage the psalm. So, so what, what can we draw from that? What do we not want to miss in terms of, oh, we're looking at structure, we're looking at the, the, the emphasis. Well, let's not miss that, the titling. Well, we don't know much from what is provided here, but we can deduct that this psalm was used in a context of public worship, presumably to be sung. It's submitted to the choir, to the choir masters, as it were. And so we, we sing, we sing truth. Uh, there's a reason that I could say that, you know, my point of connection, relationship, and remembrance of Bethlehem, it provokes you to think about, ah, oh, angels we have heard on high. It makes me think of Luke too, And it's knitting all these things together. That's what songs can do, good songs can do. And for public worship, Israel had God-inspired songs through the psalms and, and other formats as well. So it was meant to be, uh, presumably, to be sung and, and likely publicly sung and even privately sung. And then there's that reference to the Giddith. It wasn't somebody that was trouble, difficulty, stumbling over saying guitarith or something. No, it was the Giddith. So what is the Giddith? Well, this is where we, we just have to make um, educated conclusions or educated guesses it's at best speculated to be a stringed instrument, perhaps something such as a guitar-like harp, possibly that was uh, had its roots back in Gath of of Phil, uh, the, the remember Goliath of Gath. There was a, it had some cultural heritage, so maybe there was uh, again a string-like instrument. So we have some good predecessors for guitar. So some people don't necessarily like guitars, or especially in terms of, of public worship. Well, there's good history for that. The, I think the lyre would be a good point of relation to it. Now. People might argue otherwise that piano and string instruments. Nevertheless, it's an instrument as best we can determine. What kind? Well, we're not necessarily sure unless archaeology or research yields more insight in the days to come, which it might, but for now we're we're speculating on that detail. Even so, the choir director element is clear, as is the authorship. And I really I'm always grateful for the authorship. I, I want to understand, if I don't have historical context, I at least want the author. I, I want to know who wrote this and maybe what we can know about that person. So this is a psalm of David. You know, the psalms are commonly referred to as the psalms of David. Not all of them were written by David, but this one plainly was. This is a psalm of David. David, who I regard to be the, the quintessential worshiper. If you want to say, what does a worshiper look like? I think you could just go to David. Yeah, but boy, we know about his failures and struggles. Yeah, his were put on display. Thank the Lord for his kindness that ours are not. But they were much more dramatic. I think everything about that man was much more dramatic. And, And it was a difficult lot that he had. Amazing lot, but a difficult one. But I'd say all such things in view, he was the quintessential worshiper. If you're going to say, what does a worshiper look like? I would say, look to David. And perhaps no small reason for this very well may have been Because of what he expressed in Psalm 8, that he had an awareness, he had a proper uh, awareness, a proper vantage point of man and of God. That will provoke you to be a good worshiper. You know what the nature of man is, and you know what the nature of God is. And as we muse on Christmas, that's a really healthy approach to its celebratory joy. If you want to to be a good worshiper for Christmas and, and say, not only do I want to just Uh, greet people with merry christmas and have have nice things and cultural engagements we want to be worshipers and so if we want to be worshipers in the view of the context of christmas what what would be the best way to do it we'll have a proper view of both man and of god because christmas of all things and it forces us to think about that doesn't it because god was incarnate boy now we really have to wrestle with what is man who is god So just think about that as we consider the source material to the song I referenced earlier this morning. Again, angels we have heard on high, and as I've stated, came from Luke chapter 2. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, now just pause for a moment and think about those words and consider how rich they are when hearing them as one ought to. Again, we want to be like David. who We're uh, we talking about the, the authorship of the psalm, yes, but we, we're recognizing authorship How he viewed God, how he viewed man, and we want to be pressed. How can we be better worshipers ourselves? Well, he had a right view of man, a right view of God. And what is Luke reminding us of? What is Christmas reminding us of? Well, it's reminding us that there was good news. The angels were declaring, this is good news. Good news of great joy. And what's the nature of this good news of great joy? The Savior, Christ the Lord, has been born just as as has been promised. And as I mentioned, what's the good news about this? What's the good news about Christ's birth? Well, God has not engaged or interrupted the natural experience of man in his delivering, but has entered into the full experience of his own creation to most fully, perfectly, and finally deliver man. And this brief moment was as glorious as the experience of Christ's birth would be. So we could drive around and we could say, oh, that's where so-and-so was born, that's where so-and-so was born, and and maybe the responses of celebratory joy or things that surrounded it, well, the the height of the the glorious celebration, I would believe that it was right here. It was very meek, obviously, very humble otherwise. This was the high point of celebration. Because the incarnate God would be found, as he truly now was, as a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And you know, there's a reason that the world can hear that message and have a nice warm feeling. So when I put up the missions moment cited from Luke 2, Andre was saying peanuts. And it wasn't because he was worried about uh, forgetting to get the peanuts today or, or something like that. It was, it was a drawing on a cultural point of reference with what? Charlie Brown, the Christmas, their, their Christmas story. And Linus corrects that Charlie Brown is what Christmas is about. And the world says, yes, isn't that sweet? And, they, and they, they, they're willing to have manger scenes. They're willing to say, yeah, yeah, we'll sing these songs. And they have warm feelings, and that's nice. But you hear it differently, don't you? You're provoked to worshipful wonder because you hear it as you ought, like David would have heard it. He didn't hear the declaration in Luke 2. I recognize that, but, but we can speculate, and I think reasonably so. How would he have responded? I think he would have responded also fittingly with worshipful joy, because he had a proper view of man and a high view of God. That much we do know. He articulates that here in Psalm 8. And that's what a good worshiper does. That's why we can read Luke 2 and just say, not not just be like, oh, isn't that really sweet? But we know what the nature of man is. We know where man fits in this world, and we then know the nature of God. And then when God takes on humanity, we're both perplexed and left to just, cry out, yes, glory to God in the highest. Even when God chose to humble himself. And with this, we come to the opening verse now. Opening verse of Psalm 8, which, as we've established, is the first half of the inclusio that brackets this psalm and as such provides an insight into its focus and tone. However, there's an extended version, the the first one's an extended version of the inclusio as it also uh, adds on to it an additional phrase. So you'll see, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he adds on, who displays your splendor above the heavens. Now I'm familiar that probably most of your translations have something the effect of, O Lord, our Lord. And maybe you're, you got Michael W. Smith kind of serenading you right now. And you're, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic. And that's good. He's taking scripture and applying it to song and and, and intruding your thoughts in a helpful way. But again, maybe even your text reads that way. You're you're looking at your copy of the scriptures. Maybe it has capital L-O-R-D and then little L-O-R-D. And you're wondering, what's this contrast? Well, by using Yahweh here, we've simply expressed the name that the first Lord is actually communicating. It is Yahweh, our Adonai. Yahweh, our Lord. So it's most plainly, again, Yahweh our Lord, or O Yahweh our Lord. Yahweh, the eternal, self-existent, and glorious God who is perfectly holy and has entered into covenant with the people of his choosing, namely Abraham and his descendants, Israel. Now, of the elements of Yahweh's name that we would do well to draw on, though, one that's especially notable here is his eternal self-existence. That's the nature of Yahweh's character. He's eternally self-existent. That's, that's part of what you're expressing with I am. He and he alone is the only one who is himself not created and who has himself created all things. So again, that's part of the nature of what we're affirming with Yahweh our Lord is that he and he alone is the one that was not created and who himself has created all things. A matter of consequence and worshipful adoration in all contexts but particularly in view of this psalm. And as the creator and sustainer of all things and all persons, indeed all creatures, it's most natural to also recognize him as Lord, as ruler, as master. As Moses declared in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, Yahweh, your God, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the fearsome God. And so we affirm with David, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic, how mighty, how powerful and glorious. Regarding this term majestic, William Barrick stated, quote, in Hebrew, the term expresses a display of power that is awe-inspiring and even intimidating. We're cultivating a right view of God. You You understand that, Right? the eternal self-existent one, the one who created all things, and that by the nature of his worship, it's awe-inspiring, even intimidating. It undoes the worshiper. We look at 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 to 13, where David again later goes on to declare, Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So now, our God, we are thanking you and praising your glorious name. So it's no wonder, again, that he he opens and closes, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic, how awe-inspiring, how terrifying and glorious is your name, and all the earth. Your, your name, and well, what do we mean by this? The, 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 thankfully, we got the term Yahweh correct. Is that what we're getting at? Is that why you keep pressing that? Well, no, your name in, in this context by, by this, uh, David would be expressing it's not just a, a way of personal identification, but the totality of one's character, their attributes and works. So your name, the totality of, of how we understand and see and appreciate you, O Lord, O Yahweh, is majestic its majesty fills the earth. The full range of your natural creation is filled with the glory of your name. The scope of which your image bearers inhabit is filled with the majesty of your name. And here, in the first half of the Psalms Inclusio, David expands also the range of Yahweh's adoration to not just the inhabited earth by natural creation, but even beyond the heavens. So he can behold the heavens, he's beyond the heavens. And Habakkuk later would affirm this in prayer. Yahweh's splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. Again, David is saying, Yahweh, the the covenant-keeping God of Israel, is our Lord. And his name or reputation is exalted throughout the entire earth, even above the heavens. There's not an untouched element of the creation that is not compelled to testify to its creator's magnificence and great glory a testimony that we affirmed when examining Philippians 2.11 and the exaltation of Christ, an exaltation that spans the whole reach of creation and that as Isaiah, Isaiah, there we go, 45 testified, belongs to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. So that, that exaltation, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Isaiah testifies that to Yahweh and Yahweh alone does such worship belong. An expression of praise that's rooted in Yahweh's person and work and that is in turn Applied to Christ, as you remember again the exaltation of Christ to Yahweh, and Yahweh alone does all glory and all praise belong throughout the whole heavens and earth. Every knee, every tongue confessing to Yahweh, and Yahweh alone. And then what does Paul do in two eleven? He says to Christ, we're going to apply that, and his exaltation, which was, which was followed by what? Excuse me, which followed what? It followed his profound humility which was initiated when? At his incarnation and perfected in his death. Yahweh's fame and glory and names spread all throughout the earth. The glory that's applied to the Son who came in humility. Now, we are dancing, a bit of a careful dance here, dipping in and out of David's worshipful adoration of Yahweh, our Lord and creator and the glories of the incarnate Son. I recognize that, and I know that, well, is that that good exposition of Psalm 8? I I think it can be, but I'm also mindful of that. And as such, so how does that work? Well, I would argue we're standing on the shoulders of David's great praise and incorporating them into our own with a view to that which was even better. But even if we restrict ourselves to a more raw exposition of Psalm 8, we're still in a magnificent place as affirming these truths alone most naturally provoke a worshipful response of prayer, praise, and song. And with this in view, I would once more remind you that that's how the psalm both opens and closes, and as such, the whole of the body should be viewed. Again, with, O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But next, though having that inclusio started, the, the, the tone, the, the worshipful disposition, the, the emphasis on the creator, God's glory, and the magnification of it throughout the earth, and that even being applied to the sun, we now come to Psalm 8, verse 2, to what I've called the humiliation of enemies. The humiliation of enemies in verse 2, a portion of the psalm that it may seem, pecu- it may seem peculiar and even out of place, but as we'll see, it plainly fits within the course of the praise to the creator. So it reads, from the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. You might think again, we've just said, oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he's going to go on to talk about the nature of man and creation and then close with worship. So, Why children here? Why this, why enemies? David talks about enemies plenty enough, but how does that fit? Well, here it would appear that the praise of God is extending from the macro, the expanses of earth and beyond the heavens, to the micro, the mouths of small children, even the smallest of children. And that those who will seek its silencing. There are some who would say, no, that Yahweh's name will not be magnified. And they're rebellious in belief. So those who seek its silencing will themselves be silenced, but not by some powerful supernatural force but by children who actively glorify their majestic God. And perhaps that sounds like David's exercising great poetic uh, uh, liberties here and this poetic imagery that, uh, okay, that's that's a nice picture. It's not necessarily rooted in historical experience. It's not how things work. Infants and nursing babies don't quiet enemies of God. We might conclude that except for the fact that we have testimony of this very thing happening. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, but when the chief priest and the scribes saw the marvelous things which Jesus had done and the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read Psalm 8, verse 2? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Here, again, Kyle and Dulch were helpful and they concluded, all over the earth, despite its distance from the heavens above, Yahweh's name is glorious. For even children, yea, even sucklings, glorify him there. And in fact, not mutely and passively by their mere existence, but with their mouth. And Charles Spurgeon continues this theme, but approaches it not from the perspective of praise given, but of praise received, stating, he who delights in the songs of angels is pleased to honor himself in the eyes of his enemies by the praises of little children. What a contrast between the glory above the heavens and the mouths of babes and sucklings. Yet by both the name of God is made excellent. So plainly, Plainly, the Lord is quite pleased in making much of his name with little in addition to the grand and both in their proper place. So while we will next draw upon David's reference to the magnificence of the inexhaustible wonders of creation, we first note that he establishes that praise will be attributed from the one who has at best only begun to speak. And we should find this, again, little surprise as we think back also to Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, and they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they were rebuking them. But Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Our Lord welcomes the meek, the humble, and the lowly our Lord, perhaps for this very reason, who himself came meek and humble and lowly, just as we now celebrate. But we know that ultimately we are not only celebrating a birth, but a magnificent redemption that by necessity was rooted and marked by humility. And now we come to verse 3, to the works that provoke wonder. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established. Beginning with verse 3 and continuing through verse 8 in just a a, a moment here, the theme of the Creator now prevails. This is magnificent. You you might think, well, boy, yeah, of course David likes to make uh, wax eloquent on this because, for goodness sake, he... He chose to name his first son Noah, which was with very much a view to the glory of the creator. I I see that as so prominent and important to the the testimony of the scriptures. But no, no, that's not this David. This is this David. Psalm 8 David. He's making much of the creator, demonstrating the, um, the, the emphasis of the creator now prevailing, demonstrating itself directly through the works of God's hand and advancing on to his entrusting his natural creation to the care of man. And as such, the focus will now be on God's handiwork in creation and man's relationship to him and the context of the creation. And here in verse 3, the images that David draws from are those of the night sky, the heavens, the moon, and the stars. And in an account of these images, the and the the lack of the grandeur of the sun and psalms of similar illustrative wording, it's commonly concluded that this is a psalm composed under the wonder of the, the night sky. That's a reasonable conclusion. And while I love the day and the warmth of the sun, there's a clear and unique beauty to the night. And with it, just a magnificent and universal testimony that visits at the close of each day. Every day finishes with a unique testimony to the whole world. And it's when the overpowering brilliance of the sun goes down that we see that its own glory concealed something. Something we could see right now, except for the fact that the sun's so magnificent so powerful and so glorious, it's actually concealing an innumerable number of stars that are present in the heavens. planets and comets, even galaxies, all having been created in a moment and all holding their places or moving as their creator delights. And they give us a chorus of awe to gaze up to gaze at no matter where or when we're on this earth. You can go anywhere in the world and look up. And it might be harder if there's clouds or smog. I get that, or trees. But anywhere in this world, anywhere, there's the constant testimony of the nightly gaze. And it has been that way all the way from the earliest days of creation. You know, Abraham, What what we said the, the point of his justification was what? He looked up and saw the stars and believed. David saw those stars. So we, when did he write? Well, we don't know, but we do know in terms of historical context that he was a shepherd and that he was out in the night and he was out in the day and he was out in the elements and he, you can imagine being able to look up from a field and just seeing the glorious nature of God's display in the heavens. And how did he respond? He worshiped. He was made low and he worshiped. And Isaiah reminds us that David was absolutely right to come to such a place of being made low and of worshiping as we gaze into the depths of space. As he testifies to Yahweh's words in Isaiah forty twenty five to 26, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. This is an exhortation to look at the night sky. This isn't just a, you know, when you get a chance, take a gate. Look up at the night. And what are you going to see? You're going to see stars and created planets and other such things, all these celestial glories. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his vigor and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. And remember back to the account of Christ's birth, we were reminded that one of those brilliantly burning celestial elements of God's creation was testifying that there was a king to be worshiped. Matthew 2, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And so what is our response? We who not only have so much more revelation than David, you can open your Bible to Psalm 8 and look, there's so much more that comes after that but who can see deep, and and what's the nature of our context in terms of not only place of redemptive history, but even just natural history? We can see deeper and deeper into the mystery and magnificence of the cosmos, And, and what's the response? Are we just idle and indifference, or can we not hear the increasingly brilliant testimony that our Lord's splendor has reached beyond the heavens? Or worse yet, have we capitulated to the profane dishonoring of God, exercised by unbelieving men who probe deeper and deeper into the heavenly reaches of space, so desperately wanting to better understand our origins? When we have all that we need to know, God spoke. And in a moment, these stars, these planets, and these galaxies appeared. And they appeared to provoke our wonder, but also much more to provoke our worship. They appeared so as to press us to ask with David in view of such wonders, in view of how little I am looking up at space and just saying it goes and goes and goes and has so many mysteries, so magnificent things, things that are even our own earth. is so tiny compared to so many things. We're pressed to something here. We can either be pressed and crushed and feel, I'm nothing, which maybe you ought to think that on some level, being a little deflated. But you ought to ask yourself, as David does, what is man What is man that you, Yahweh, you creator God, would remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Again, beholding the mysterious majesty of space, men are left to only wonder how far does it go and how great are its unseen treasures, how much will never, ever be known or seen. It's been there. Its glories have been there and yet generations and generations and generations never saw it and we're getting tiny little peaks. And in such, we are ever so gently reminded that this was all spoken in a moment and only remains by God's good pleasure and will in time pass and give way to something even greater. So it's only fitting to then return our focus back from the celestial to the terrestrial and ask, what is man? Man who build boxes for God as meeting places, as points of prayer and bases of worship, knowing full well as Solomon prayed when dedicating the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, um, verse 27, but will God truly dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. And so with this, we come to a proper valuation of man who, both, who God both remembers and cares for, when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him, the son of man that you care for him? Again, what is man? Genesis eighteen twenty-seven. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Again, what is man? Second Samuel seven eighteen. Then David the king went in and sat before Yahweh, and he said, Who am I, O Lord Yahweh? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? First Chronicles twenty nine, fourteen, but who am I, and who are my people that we should be able to offer as willing as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have we have given you. What is man when we view Psalm 90 verses 3 to 6? You turn man back into dust and say, return, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or is a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it blossoms and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it withers away and dries up. Or Psalm hundred and three, verses fifteen and sixteen, as for man his days are like grass as a flower of the field, so he flowers. When the wind has passed over it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. Or Psalm one hundred forty four, verses three to four, O Yahweh, what is man that you know him? Or the Son of Man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. So again, what is man? Men and women are are fragile, fleeting parts of this natural creation, yet distinct among the creation, as we are image bearers who are personally knit together by God himself. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance, and in your book all of them were written, um, excuse me, all of them were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And with this, note the affectionate care towards man, that the creator is mindful of man and that he goes beyond this and even cares for man. Further, this appears to be a, a common grace to mankind broadly as David is using general terms for man in the context of the experience of creation and makes no qualifi- qualification to restrict its application And note the emphasis that the text puts on the Lord as the creator. And it's in this context that man finds his value and his role. And it's in this context that one must respond properly with a big view of God, a right view of God, and from this a right view of man, and ultimately a right view of the incarnate son of man. Now, In the interest of time, we need to keep moving, but I want to pepper you with a range of reminders. Uh, God remembering and and caring for man, notably for his people. God remembered Noah. That's the first point of of, uh, reference that we have, God remembering someone, and he remembered Noah. You might think, well, yeah, of course. He set the whole thing up. We get the whole Genesis 6, 7, 8. How gracious. Having to... To, because of the wickedness of man, everything in natural creation is wiped out except what Noah and his family and, and the, the creatures that were preserved in the ark and God remembered him. That's, that's an amazing kindness. God remembered Abraham. God remembered Rachel. The Lord remembered Hannah, Samuel's mother. God will remember his rainbow promise. God remembered his covenant with the patriarchs. God remembered his covenant God will remember his covenant. Constantly, this, this language, and we have a variety of references there for you, this, this God remembers. God remembers he's not indifferent. There's an affection, a care for his creation, notably man. And then there are those who petition God to remember, and they could do so confident of his character and ways with men, especially his people. So there, there were requests for God to remember the patriarchs And he did. Samson requested to be remembered by the Lord, and he was. Hezekiah pleaded to be remembered by the Lord, and he was. Solomon prayed the Lord would remember his love for his father David, and he did. Nehemiah prayed that the Lord would remember his command to Moses, and he did. Nehemiah requested that God remember him, and he did. And for God to remember what is that communicating? And what is it communicating when we remember one another? It, it implicitly expresses his care. But his care is perhaps most plainly appreciated in the employing of the language of being a shepherd, a shepherd to his people. And with this, perhaps another of David's psalms comes to mind. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Because he remembers. Because he cares for his people. Or perhaps you remember the severity of language employed in Ezekiel 34 where the Lord rebukes the unrighteous shepherds of Israel for their abusing his flock, his sheep, and bringing the matter to a proper climax. The Lord declared, because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust at at all the sickly with your horns until you have scattered them abroad, therefore I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered, and I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will shepherd them himself and be their shepherd, and I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. And how is Yahweh's remembrance and care expressed in this matter? How how does he express that he remembers his people, that he remembers man, that he cares for people, that he cares for man? Well, again, I've, I've argued that the, high point would probably be the picture of a shepherd. Psalm 23, precious shepherding psalm. Exodus 34, excuse me, Ezekiel 34, a corrective shepherding approach. And how is that expressed? That I'm going to shepherd my people through my servant David. And so how is that expressed? How is that care? How is that remembrance of Yahweh, the creator God, caring for man expressed most perfectly? And the sending of his son. And the humility of the incarnation and the coming of the one who went on to declare in John 10, I am the good shepherd. Yahweh's remembering and care was plain and became all the more gloriously clear in Christ. And with this we come to the unique esteeming of man in verse 5. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and majesty. A little lower than the angels, or some of your translations may state, a little lower than the heavenly beings, which in my opinion is a bit ambiguous and appears to be all but straddling the choice of angels and the other popular option of a little lower than God. Now, the reason for this diversity of language here is that David uses the term Elohim, and you don't have to be a Hebrew student to recognize Elohim. Ah, uh, That's the, the common Hebrew term for God. Little g or big g. God or gods. Elohim. Which again is tr- commonly translated as God or gods. So naturally there are some reasonable arguments for translating the text a little lower than God. Especially in view of the context of man as the image bearer of God. However, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament used angels. And as such... Uh, and as such is what the author of Hebrews went on to cite from when quoting this text, that you've made him a little lower than the angels. Now, that has not fully resolved the matter for me, but it's a good support for angels, which I'm deferring to. I've, I've heard out the, the various rationales, the different arguments for angels or God. You made them a little lower than angels. You made them a little lower than God. There's really good arguments both ways, and there are a lot of ramifications whichever way you go. This is one of the few places I'm just going to say I'm not going to talk about a lot, just trust me, or we'll go through Psalm 8 by itself one day. And operating off of the conclusion that man has been made a little lower than the angels does not diminish man's special role among the creation. Oh, oh what, is, what is man that you remember him, And then we've been made so low, but then God remembers and cares for him. Oh, now we're lower than the angels. Oh, we've been demoted. No, not at all. Rather, it serves as a natural recognition that in his natural person, man has limitations that the supernatural appears to supersede. In this regard, man, subject to the constrictions of the natural, is a little lower than the angels, but he's also uniquely esteemed as both the image bearer of God and the immediate steward of the Lord's natural creation. Further, man finds exceptional value in the majestic Lord as the majestic Lord crowns him with glory and honor. Now, we know that things will change in the resurrection, as Paul expresses in 1 Corinthians 15. He states there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. That's our present experience, earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a corruptible body. It is raised an incorruptible body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And then skipping down to uh, the next few verses, as is the earthly, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. But for now, Man has an extraordinary identity, but one that is a little lower than the angels. And this will bring us to the final portion of the psalm's body, the stewardship of man. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Man has been given an extraordinary privilege and responsibility over the works of God's hands. And as the image bearer of God, mankind effectively serves as the stewards of creation. However, there's not some autonomous right, but an entrusted responsibility given by the creator to whom men will give an account. Now again, the the idea of stewardship is clear, but it's framed in the larger context of praising the creator God and recognizing the unique and cherished role of man. However, this does not mean that we disregard the matter altogether simply because it's not the direct thrust of the text. Rather, it is text such as this that compels to give a proper thought to such matters. And broadly speaking, I would argue that evangelicals we often struggle to strike a proper balance with a a naturalistic, non-God-fearing world for two major reasons, as I understand it. One, we rightly see the world as created rather than a sub-divine entity that would require its own measure of worship. That changes how we view the world. And two, we understand the declared end of the natural world in the context of the sovereign exercising of God's plan and authority. We know that the present heavens and earth will fade away, that they will be destroyed by fire. And then there will be a new heavens and a new earth. But knowing that we will be in residual conflict of theology, ecology, philosophy, and often practice with an unbelieving world, we should still strive to be the best biblical conservationist possible as we are the chief stewards of this magnificent creation. Now this does not mean hugging trees and killing men over slugs and whales, but neither should we develop a cavalier perspective in our care of the magnificent works of God. Like headship in the home, the extension of authority does not provide an authorization to abuse one's oversight and care. Stewardship does not come with the authority to abuse. Abuse of any nature is always a vulgar tragedy, and it will result in condemnation and or the loss of stewardship. And so we view our relationship to this natural world and our care of it through the lens of the original charge in these matters. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. But note here, that God is the active agent here. He is the sovereign, and he delegates this stewardship to mankind, a stewardship that I do not believe is exclusively limited to believers, but mankind as a whole, just as marriage and work or creation elements applicable to all men, so is the stewardship of creation. Therefore, the stewarding of creation is a charge for all men. We, of all people, should be exemplars of such matters as we recognize that it was Yahweh who created and has formed us from the ground, making us in his image." Now, to press this matter just a little more, I would remind us all that we are stewards. Yahweh remains Lord of his creation. Perhaps with this, you remember how Melchizedek spoke of the Lord as the possessor of heaven and earth when in blessing Abram, or the testimony of Moses when charging the Israelites to circumcise their hearts. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Deuteronomy 10.14, or as we've seen the testimony of David as he prays with thanksgiving for the temple provisions, yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and you exalt yourself as head over all, 1 Chronicles 29.11. Or perhaps you remember the testimony of Jonah as he's compelled um, the, the sailors uh, are compelled to, to find out who's the source behind this problem. Why is the sea so unrelenting and overwhelming us and will soon destroy us? And they, they demand, who are you? And Jonah responds. He doesn't just say, I'm, I'm Jonah. I have, I'm not a good sailor. Sorry for the, the mishap, fellas. No, what does he say? I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And with, that, and with this last testimony, you may also recall what came of this engagement. And so they lifted Jonah up and hurled him into the sea, and the sea stood still from its ranging, raging. Now, Jonah had to all but compel, force these men to do this. But when they did, a terrifying storm stilled from its raging. Why? Because Yahweh created the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land. It was Yahweh's storm and it was Yahweh's calm. And as we think about that, perhaps your mind begins to drift to another stormy sea in which terrified sailors stirred up another man from his rest. And they said to him and got him up saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus said to them, Why are you so cowardly, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? What kind of man is this? What kind of, well, the kind of man who is not simply the steward of creation, but its Lord. I would argue the kind of man whose voice the creation knows. The kind of man who, for a time, was himself a little lower than the angel's. Which is why they would say, what kind of man? He's just a humble, average, normal man. Not a glorious birth, not especially glorious life. But he speaks, and he's spoken before. When he speaks, things happen. And here David concludes his psalm, finishing as he began. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name and all the earth. It's a a fitting eruption of worship for the creator God, who so graciously accepts the praises of children, remembers and cares for man, and entrusts man with the care of his world. And then widening our attention herein is also a fitting eruption of worship for the creator God, who, having so ordered all things, stepped into time and creation itself. He stepped into time and in creation and suffering as well. So he didn't just engage creation, he entered in creation. He didn't enter creation, he entered it with humility and suffering. He who, as the author of Hebrews reminds us, was made for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So while hospitals come and go and while various birthplaces are memorialized for a time and while we cannot say absolutely certain that the hole in the ground that I gazed into while in Bethlehem was was the spot what we can do is we can worshipfully remember the incarnation of the suffering son, the resurrected Savior, the creator, the creator who was mindful of man, who remembered man, who when man fell, his image bears, not even having gotten out of what short span of time that had passed, promised a redeemer. and He remembered his promises and he cared for his people. And so why do we celebrate? Why do we give such unique and special emphasis to Christmas and such occasions? It's because the creator who engaged his people mercifully, graciously, powerfully engaged his creation over and over again, rescuing and caring for them most perfectly, not only engaged, but joined his creation. And when you can get your mind around that, the nature of that care and the nature of that remembrance and the nature of the the image bearer who was made for a time lower than the angels, although he was the one whose glory fills out the whole earth and beyond the heavens, then you can stop saying, okay, well, then we can move on to something else now. But until then, I think we're pressed to where David brought us, to a right view of man and a right view of God, which demands that we worship and we worship more precisely and perfectly than David ever could have. Could you imagine him saying, what is man that you remember him? And then, what is man that you would become a man? And in humility. And so we conclude as David began and finished himself, O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All right, let's pray. Lord, we recognize that uh, as you spoke, you declared that which you created to be good. And it's fitting as we came to more and more and more see and to hear and understand the nature of your character and your works, you do all things well. You do all things good. You are good. And we we have no point of comparison as we... Uh, cry out to you as we think. There's nothing that we know that's not created. There's no point of relation that we have that's not created other than you, the creator of all things. And we think about that with David as we, we can look around even now and think about the, the wonder and the glory of the natural creation when the night comes and it will come soon as the hours pass and we can gaze up and just think that there's, there's, no, there's no reach to the depths of the cosmos. There's no no exhausting that. What is man that you would consider us, that you would remember us, that you would care for us? And yet you have remembered and most perfectly cared yourself entering into creation in all humility. But even as we recognize that the nature of the created order is that all things are brought under submission of man, all beasts and cattle and fish and birds, to various extents we've we've seen and experienced that man uh, having uh, just the, the natural rule over this this world as it were, there's going to be a more complete submission, even as the author of Hebrews expresses that you have not seen anything yet, not like what the sun's going to experience, not what the sun is going to do. and we remember that even as we engaged with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, we, we saw how low that uh, the nature of, although he, Christ was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, and then being obedient to the point of death, and then exalted. Exalted to the place that belongs to Yahweh and Yahweh alone, as indeed Christ is the incarnate, God, who, who to look at him is to see the Father and therefore every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth. And so we rejoice now in the humility of the coming of the Son with a view to the suffering of the Son and a longing for the full glory of the Son. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have designed the order of this world as you have, but you've also designed worship in the way that you have to provoke us to remember. And so may we worshipfully remember and celebrate the joyful incarnation of the Son, the Creator who stepped into creation, who expanded the glory of God beyond the reaches of what we can know or appreciate, but which we also have the privilege of engaging in. And to this we give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.